morning. Good to see you all. Now, this is a dangerous thing because, uh, well, it just, it's dangerous when I get up here and speak. And I think Josh said I had two hours to preach so everybody get comfortable and I'll put you to sleep here. So, um, just kidding. I'm off to a bad start, though. I'm kicking coffee over here and um, during the greeting time. So, um, but no, just so thankful to be here. Um, just wanting to, to grasp that, that the King of Kings ordains every moment, every instance of your life. And he's placed you here in Boston with a purpose. You're not here by chance or mistake. The God of the universe who lives and loves you knows every detail of your life. And he's planted you here to know him well. And beyond that, to make him known. And God's been teaching me lately that until I'm I'm realizing that I exist to know him really well and to live for him and to make him known, my life does not make any sense. So this great king has a purpose for you, and it's to know him well and to make him known in this city. Uh, the city really is a, a, just a neat place for me. I've got a lot of roots here. I was born in Framingham. I know that's not the city, but my dad grew up in the city. And there was an instance that took place over two or three years in, in my family's life that changed the trajectory of my parents' lives and, and my life and my three brothers' lives. There was an incredible couple that, that loved my parents enough that for two years they shared Jesus Christ with them on the job. Parents had no hope. My dad thought, hey, if I get a career, I get my business off the ground, uh, I'll be content, I'll find happiness, there'll be fulfillment there. But the more money he had, the more empty he felt. My parents were really close to splitting. I was a toddler, and uh, Fred Blankenship and Barbara Blankenship just loved on them and prayed for them and said, hey, Larry, what you need is Jesus. And one night at 2 in the morning in the middle of a nor'easter, my parents got into the car, drove over to the Blankenship's house and said, hey, tell us about Jesus again. And from there, there was a spark. And my parents came to know Jesus. And then my two older brothers and then me and my little brother. Christ changes everything. He's why we're here. He's why we exist, to know him, make him known. You guys have been given a great privilege to, to leverage the kingdom of God here in Boston. Be encouraged in that. Know that you don't do this alone. You're empowered by the King of Kings, by the Holy Spirit for this task. Before we delve in, let me, let me pray here for a moment and we'll, we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we praise you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to, to come together and to focus uh, on you, and to focus on your word. God, I pray that you'd be honored, that you'd be glorified, that you would move in our midst. Father, that you would soften us draw us closer to you, that our hearts would beat with yours, Lord. Be honored this morning, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we come to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, the first three verses uh, in a fantastic text written by the Apostle Paul as he's being moved of the Holy Spirit. And it's a, it's a real crucial, crucial juncture in the letter because for the first three chapters, Paul is just unpacking the beauty of God's gospel and his sovereign grace. He's building this incredible foundation. And so he makes this movement from orthodoxy, sound thinking, sound doctrine, this great foundation that we have by the grace of God. And now he kind of flips the script. He turns the table. He bridges the gap here to the second half of the letter that moves us from orthodoxy, right thinking, sound doctrine, to orthopraxy. Uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, being able to apply 
the doctrine and, and the truth of God's word. So from orthodoxy, sound doctrine, sound theology, right thinking, to a life of orthopraxy, practice, living out our faith, that the gospel should shape this community and shape our lives and propel us forward. We should be together in community, kind of a movie trailer for our neighbors, a snapshot of the grace of God and the hope that we have in this king. We live out the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, hey, look, look what God is doing for you. And now respond. Respond as a family, a diverse community through the spirit of God. Live it out practice it. It'd be kind of foolish to go to the university or study medicine, go to med school, but then never put it into practice or put it into play. He's saying, look, through this community, through his enablement, live it, model it. Together, we should be a robust reflection of the grace of our loving God. Not on our own strength, but leaning on one another and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So from orthodoxy, sound doctrine, building on that foundation to a life of practice. All right, Sunday, as we know, the Patriots play today, and it's nice being in, and I'm sorry I met some Bronco fans this morning, um, but it's nice kind of being in, in a home turf here. We're kind of out near Bronco territory, and we get beat up a lot about being Patriots fans and deflate gate and that kind of thing. But as I think about the Patriots, I mean, they spend a lot of time in preparation, film study, uh, weight training, taking care of themselves, you know, through diet and all that sort of thing. But then they need to know the playbook. They delve into the playbook. They know the plays inside and out. But their desire is not just to have the playbook between the ears. Their desire is, as a team, to put the theory and abstraction of that playbook into play, to bring the playbook to life on Sunday between the white-painted lines of the gridiron. Silly example, but as a community, we have this purpose and direction, and it's the desire of God for us. It's his will that we would live out the instruction of God's word. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning uh, there at verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing here. He's writing to a group of believers there at Ephesus, kind of modern-day Turkey, and he says, I therefore, he's reasserting himself here as, as the author of this text. I therefore, uh, he says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Paul uses this term, therefore, and it, it summarizes everything that he's been stating in the first three chapters. He's saying, look, I've established all of this truth here, but, but don't lose sight of that. Don't neglect that because we're going to build on that now moving forward in the second half of the letter. So therefore, this term uh, in one foul swoop is, is kind of to incorporate and to capture and to summarize everything he laid out. So we're building on what I've just established. Don't forget, but we're moving forward. So therefore, and he's pointing back to incredible doctrine and truth. And so in a nutshell, what did, what did we see here? What does Paul establish in the first half of the letter? In short... As Louis Giglio says, we, we, we move from death to life. We were dead, but now we are alive. Spiritually, we're bankrupt. We were headed to an eternal demise apart from the king of kings. We were destined to, to experience the, the, the wrath of God and to experience a, a time away from eternally separated from God. There was no hope. But God mercifully and miraculously stepped in. And what we see is God the Father selects, chooses us, and he calls us into the kingdom of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. We were dead, but now we've been made alive. 
not through our efforts, not through being religious or philanthropic, but by the grace of God. Paul establishes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2, 8 and following. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. And he goes on, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were dead. We've been made alive by the unmerited favor of the living God. We've been given life. And he's just showered these incredible blessings upon us. Spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing is what Paul established in chapter 1, verse 3. Overall, we see that God is compassionate. He has a great heart for the ostracized. Those who are rebels, those who are drifting off in the distance, we see that we were far off, but Christ brings us near through his shed blood. He's redeeming a new society, a new community known as the body of Christ. We're saved and brought into this great family. He says we're one new man. This new creation to the redemption of Jesus here in chapter 2, verse 15. One new humanity. One new family, Jew and Gentile alike, coming together. Those who have placed their faith in Christ coming together as one through Jesus. So great unity amongst our diversity based on what Christ has done. He's established this new holy community. Now Paul saying, let's live it out. Let's walk it out. So I therefore, and he goes, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm in bondage here. I'm a servant of the Lord God. And as a result of my call uh, to bring the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations outside of Israel, I'm now in, in, in incarcerated. And so maybe my mission field has changed, but I'm still here serving God. I'm still here ministering for him. I'm still making disciples. He's reminding his audience where he is and the cost here, and that he still belongs to the Lord, that the call still stands. Prisoner for the Lord. And this is where kind of the rubber meets the road now. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you. This here is a strong imperative. I implore or exhort you not to, to walk in this new way. I'm urging you. He's speaking with great authority, speaking truth into them, saying, look, based on what's established, based on your new identity in Jesus, I'm urging you to, to move and live in a way that's drastically different from your life before Christ showed up. I urge you. Now, now you here is you all, this community. He, now, this is true of us as individuals, but his mindset is that us together would be walking out the gospel, living it out together, applying the truth of God's word, the doctrine we have here. So I'm urging you, imploring, exhorting you to walk. Paul uses this term walk eight times, and he's using it metaphorically. He's not necessarily saying about kind of a, a journey on foot, but he's saying a, a lifestyle to conduct yourself in a new way, to conduct yourself with this new life, this new existence, this new lifestyle. Think about it for a moment. I mean, some of us just know Jesus for a little while now, and others have, have known him for many years, but when we look back to last month or last year or 10 years from now, our lives look different based on the fact that Jesus has shown up, that he's been working in us and changing us. Our lives change. Our priorities change. I think about the things that were significant to me and for me before Jesus was reality in my life, before I was sensitive to his work in my life. 
there's a drastic change in our lives now in Christ as a community uh, and, and as opposed to our old lives before Jesus shaped and changed and showed up and moved in us. Saying, walk in a manner, have this lifestyle that's worthy of this great calling. Worthy. It's like an equilibrium. The scales are balanced. We've been called to something uh, impeccable and beautiful. And say, so your life should measure up, should be balanced with that. This, this term worthy, this equilibrium on par with. He says, you've been, this calling. You've been called. Uh, we've been saved, rescued, brought into this new family. Saying, live like it, live differently, live forgiven, live in the light of Christ, live in the grace of our God. I've got three brothers, and I have all these distinct memories of sitting around the table with my parents. And, and my parents would say, listen, you guys represent the name Bresnahan, our little Irish claim. You represent us. But more significantly than that, you represent the name of Jesus. We're ambassadors for Christ. He says, guys, you, you represent Jesus. You bring uh, the hope of the nations with you. You bring Christ with you where you go. And this morning, I want us to grasp Paul saying, look, represent Jesus in community. You have the the great privilege of taking the name of Christ into your campus or your office or wherever you are. We have the remedy and the solution to what ails our world. His name is Jesus. He brings transformation. He brings eternal life. He brings hope. He's the one that renews and transforms. My dad said, represent Jesus. You're his ambassador, and that's us. We have the privilege of carrying his name bringing his fame wherever we go. Paul's saying live in a new way, a drastic new lifestyle. This new life based on the grace of our king. Now this can sound a little ambiguous right now. This is like, okay, what does this walk look like? This sounds, what's going on here? But it's incredible to see Paul fleshes it out now. In verses 2 and 3, he puts some traction to this. He begins to describe what this is about, what this worthy walk or worthy lifestyle is all about, how the gospel plays out. But before I go into verses 2 and 3 to, to, to get us, give us a better understanding of, of the attributes that now flow from the redeemed life and flow from this redeemed community, I, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 3 uh, for a moment and, and read a, a couple of the verses of Paul's prayer here because he sets up how this new life is feasible and it's really key. So if you look back at Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, Uh, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Verse 16 is really key here. He says, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. What Paul now calls us to is only feasible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the community that's surrendered and yielded to the power of the Spirit that this life now can be feasible. It's the work of the Spirit in us. So what we see now, this is the result of being made new, transformed, and knowing Jesus by faith, being in his grace, his favor, his mercy. Let's take a look here at verse 2. Let's now begin to see what this new lifestyle is about, how the doctrine of the first half of the letter now plays out, practically speaking, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, Paul says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another 
in love. He says, with humility. Through the Spirit, this community is to have an attitude of humility. Humility is the absence of pride and arrogance. It's the ability to be others-focused, to be selfless. But how crazy is that concept really in our world, in our day, a day of self-promotion? and Kind of a me-centric world. Paul is calling us to something radical through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. We must have an attitude of humility, uh, the absence of pride and arrogance to be others-focused. I think there's an inherent danger in the body of Christ to have a hierarchical system. Hey, I've been a believer for 10 years now, and, and I've gone to Bible college, or I went to seminary, or, or in the early church, the danger of uh, Jewish believers coming together with Gentile believers, and I think there may have been a tendency for, for our, our, the Jewish brothers to say, look, Gentiles, yes, you're brothers and sisters in Christ now. You're part of this new family, this new humanity But don't forget, we were the chosen nation. I mean, God gave us the law. He gave us the covenants, the promises. And yes, you're blessed because we are set apart to be a blessing to the nations. But don't forget that. Paul's saying nonsense. We're one in Christ. We're equal. Free or slave, we're one in Christ. There's no hierarchical system. We yield under the the head of the body of Christ, Jesus. He is our king. An attitude of, of humility, being others-focused, being selfless. Jesus is the great example. He is the uh, humble one. We see in Philippians chapter 2 that he didn't count equality with the Father as a thing to be grasped. Though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, Christ yielded his life to the Father's will. He surrendered his life to, to glorify God. He came as a servant to this earth. He came as a Jewish peasant to go to the cross for the glory of the Father and for our eternal benefit. Humility. Paul also tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, kind of giving us more of a a description of this uh, others-focused life. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Absence of pride, arrogance, being mindful of our neighbor, mindful of our brother and sister in Christ, trying to build them up, establish them, build into them, and lead them along for the glory of God and for their growth, their spiritual formation, so humility. What else comes from this new life? Looking back here at Ephesians 4, back in verse 2, and he says, in gentleness, gentleness, the opposite of being uh, harsh or heavy-handed, but it's to be gentle. It's to be calm, to be self-controlled. We recognize this as one of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Gentleness. Imagine here that there was... Uh, a tendency with, with new, the community coming together with just all the unique uh, cultures and, and characteristics and differences. There needed to be this gentleness, this uh, calm attitude as we're morphing together as one in Jesus, this gentleness. Barclay gives a, a pretty interesting description uh, of, of what's happening here. Barclay stated, the man who is gentle is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. 
A lot of times we think that gentleness equates weakness, but we look at Jesus and we know that he was humble and gentle of heart, and he certainly is not weak. Nowhere in the corpus of Scripture do we see this term gentleness to equate or connote weakness. Jesus had this frustration and this brokenness over what was taking place in the house of worship, a place meant for prayer for the Father. And their people were in there infiltrating and seeking selfish gain and and breaking down and taking advantage of people. And Jesus comes in with this, this holy frustration and this righteous anger. And he turns the tables over and restores it to a place for the glory of God. Gentleness never equates weakness. It's a measure of being self-controlled and being calm at the right time and showing frustration when necessary. Injustice will happen. Hurt will take place. We'll be hurt reeling, and we'll need to have the ability and the spirit to, to demonstrate the ability to, to step up and to seek reconciliation and be peacemakers doesn't mean that we sit back always being calm. There there is a a position where we lovingly, without sinning, demonstrate anger and frustration when things are not right or things are broken. It's our desire to seek renewal and transformation in this family and within the city through the power of our King. He says you guys have to have an attitude of gentleness, being calm when appropriate and demonstrating frustration when it is appropriate as well. So in 1935, there was a gentleman riding a city bus in Detroit. Gets on the city bus. He's got to go several miles to get to his destination. By himself in the back of the bus, and three guys get on the bus, and they go and sit by this gentleman who's alone. They don't go to befriend him, but bully him and and, and just pester him. They're trying to pick a fight. The gentleman says nothing. He's just quiet, stoic the whole time, just looking through the, the windshield of the bus, waiting for his opportunity to get off. The bus stops, he gets up, never says a word, he reaches into his pocket, pulls out a business card, and on the business card it says, Joe Lewis Boxer. True story. The the brown bomber, the the greatest uh, fighter arguably of all time, world champion from 37 to 49, Joe Lewis demonstrated gentleness. Great power, great ability, could have sought revenge, could have... uh, really in a few foul swoops, cleaned their clocks and put them to sleep on the floor of that bus. I mean, easily. Composed, calm, tender. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't try to get even or be proud. He just walked off the bus quietly. Paul's saying, look, for this family to thrive, for the gospel to be a reality visibly in our city or whatever our context is, and that day was Ephesus, there must be through the Spirit an attitude of humility and gentleness. And then he goes on with patience. That's a word that we don't often like because we want immediate results, immediate solutions, immediate answers. We want immediate service. We want it now. But patience is the ability to have a long-suffering attitude to wait on one another as we grow. We're in different places in our walk with Jesus. Some of you here this morning are like, I don't know, I'm interested in hearing more, but I I don't know Christ yet. And then many of you do know Christ, but we're at different places in our, our walk, our relationship, our standing before a holy, loving, compassionate God. And so we need to 
patient with one another. We're going to step on one another's toes at times. We need to be patient, waiting. Just waiting on the Lord, waiting on his movement, waiting on his hand, waiting on a brother or sister in Christ. You can think again about the world's coming together, Jewish believers, Gentile believers now coming together in this new family. And you can kind of envision, you know, the the Gentile brothers going to the Jewish brothers like, hey, you guys practice circumcision? Like, what's that about? And the Jewish guy's like, you guys eat bacon? Like, what's that about? You know, and in my opinion, bacon makes everything better anyway. But um, um, so just differences there. Bad jokes. This is okay. This is what pastors do. I make all kinds of bad jokes. What are you doing for lunch today? We'll, we'll keep it going. So, um, but he's saying, look, patience, waiting. And patience is the ability to, to wait when there are not immediate results. When, when there's no fruit there, it's like the farmer casting seed and he's waiting on the Lord to move. No, no immediate fruit, no bumper crop. It takes time. He's saying, Patience here is the ability to wait when there are not immediate answers or results or immediate solutions, and you wait on one another. You wait on the Lord God, and you know that he's faithful, and he's building his church, and he's grooming and sharpening and molding us for his glory, and we're patient with one another as the king of kings has his way in our lives. Some of you are enduring some hard times here. Deep hurt, deep wounds. You're thinking, Lord, will you ever make this right? Will you ever heal this? Will you heal me? Another element of being patient is is waiting, no matter what your circumstance is, without abandoning hope. So we wait. We wait on our King. We wait on our Lord, and we wait on one another this tenderness, this humility, this gentleness, this patience. This is a convicting text. It cuts to the core because so often we, we don't live the gospel and we look at the scriptures like a mirror into our soul and we realize that we're deficient and we're broken. And we know that rather than representing our king so often. I've represented other many kings, and I've tried to establish many kingdoms, and I've tried to find significance in perishable things. And it's easy to be downtrodden and broken, but we're reminded of what Paul is established here in Ephesians. And the fact is we've been made new, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We rest in his identity, not our own. He's patient. He's waiting. He's long-suffering, even though I throw grown man temper tantrums and complain about what I have or what I don't have or what I need versus what I really need in his eyes. And he rides it out, loving on us whittling us, shaping us. And right now, we don't really reflect the image bearers that he uh, had designed us to be within our fallenness and within this world. But one day when we're in his presence, we will be those image bearers that he designed us to be because we'll be eradicated and rectified from our sin plague. We'll be in his presence. 
But through the movement of the Spirit, this can come to fruition little by little as he's whittling and molding and having his way in us, just forming us, forming this family here for his great purpose. There's all humility and gentleness with, with patience, waiting without losing hope regardless of your circumstance, waiting when there's no immediate results or immediate fruit, we wait and we trust because he's building us and shaping our faith and we know he's real and he's dependable. We know that he's faithful. Then he says, look, you need to bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another. It's the idea of, of tolerating our, our differences within the body. We're unique. We've got different convictions on things that may not be core to the gospel. We've got uh, different ideas on how educating our children or how to serve. Them. And we're, we're different. How we dress, where we come from, what our education level is. And so he's saying, tolerate your unique qualities. Bear with one another. Though we're different. And that's God's plan. He's shaping us, but he allows us to have a unique personality, to have a unique story, to to come from a unique part of the world and to live in a special part of the city where we're different. He's saying, bear with one another. Tolerate your quirks and your unique attributes that are not the same. We're, We're not cookie cutters in Jesus. Bearing with one another. What's the caveat? How is that feasible? And he drops this fantastic word in there. He says, in love. This is how that's going to take place. It's in love, this agape love. That's not hoarding, but it's generous and it gives. And it seeks the highest good in our brother or sister. It seeks the highest good for our neighbor. It seeks the the highest good for the glory of God and and the benefit of, of our neighbor. It seeks the highest good of this city. Love. Through the Spirit, this is an intentional choice backed by action. Through the power and enable the Holy Spirit, we choose to love our roommate or our neighbor or our co-worker. It goes beyond lip service and it's backed up by our lives, our hands and our feet. It's backed by action. I, I choose to love this city. You choose to love this city by the enablement of God's grace and by his spirit. It's love that binds us together. It's Christ that provides that and meshes us. Got to do life together to be able to love one another. We need to spend time together bearing with one another in love, the sacrificial, selfless love that, that seeks to build up, that seeks to give away, that seeks to make an impact right here. Paul goes on. We'll look at verse 3 here, and, and we'll wrap it up here in a few minutes. He says, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's saying, be zealous and urgent to preserve and promote this unity, this harmony, this oneness that the Holy Spirit has provided. He's saying, look, you can't establish this harmony, this unity. It's not something we can erect. It's nothing we can sustain, sustain, but the Spirit of God has established this oneness, this harmony. But he's saying, 
preserve it. Be zealous to, to maintain it. Don't be divisive. Don't uh, work against the oneness and the harmony that, that God is providing through his Holy Spirit. So be eager to, to maintain this unity, this oneness that comes from the Holy Spirit. How do we do it? He, he can, again, he's still developing this idea, this new lifestyle, this new walk, this worthy walk. He says we do it in the bond of peace. The language he's using here is, is one that we, we see in anatomy. It's the idea of being meshed together like ligaments in the body. We're being meshed together in, in this bond of peace, pursuing this oneness, yielding to the oneness that the Spirit has provided This is supernatural. This is something beyond us. It transcends us. This is harmony, this oneness that can bring people from all walks of life together in a sustainable way. As Josh was praying, he was talking about, you know, peace. There's all this kind of faux peace, this temporal peace peace and oneness, but what Paul is speaking of here is an eternal peace, an eternal oneness where one day we will be with our king in his presence. He'll call us home or he'll return and establish a new heaven, a new earth, usher in the new Jerusalem, and, and the saints from all the generations will be together in this uh, bond of peace, not for a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years or a billion years, but for all time in the presence of the one we were designed for. We weren't designed just to exist for 80 years and make a bunch of money or draw a little notoriety. You know, we were designed to be in this harmony in the body of Christ, this eternal family. One day, all things will be made right. We won't have people shooting up the Parisian streets. Racism will be no longer. Cancer will be no more. No more AIDS. None of this. We will be made new. I pray for that day. But here's the thing. In this unity and oneness that the Spirit provides, we're giving this city a snapshot of the hope and the life that there is now in Jesus Christ. We've got to grasp that. We're not, we're not waiting for a day when Jesus returns. We want that desperately. But we're living out the gospel and community. So people say, wait a minute, there's hope here. There's something different here. They're weird, but they're a good weird. Something's going on there. So there's a taste of that community that doesn't start, you know, with harps and wings. It starts now in Jesus. And through the Spirit, we model that for His glory. We model that for His fame. And it's not my strength. It's not our strength. It's the living God's strength moving through us, strengthening and empower us in the inner being through God the Holy Spirit. And many of you are here today because you've tasted this grace and this new life and this oneness. And you want something real and tangible and God's been moving and changing it and here you are. I'll never forget going to South Africa with Kristen right after seminary. 
before the boys showed up, we got to go to, to, to Cape Town and Johannesburg. We, we made some really good friends at seminary that are uh, South African. I said, look, you guys need to come with us and go see our homeland and, and meet our people and meet our families. We're thinking, well, how in the world are we going to pull this off? Like airfare, like the South Africa, that's going to be crazy. But God provided, and we got to go for three weeks and just learn and, and serve. And um, I can remember going into a squatter village, this kind of refugee camp outside of Johannesburg. And, and just uh, what I perceived to be a lack of hope. If you go into this one... Uh, dilapidated space and we meet uh, this incredible woman and we go and we get to, we think we're going to encourage her and share Jesus with her and, and we did and she's like hey guess what well I'm your big sister in the faith and the unity that Paul speaks of that comes through the spirit was evident there you can't manufacture that we had this connection this bond I said you're, you're my big sister in the faith and I'm your little brother in the faith this unity and this bond of peace that connects the body of Christ. Not only here in, in Boston, we want a vision for the city. We want to connect with others and connect with other believers and bring the fame of Christ throughout the city, but we're connected to an eternal family that spans the globe. That's amazing. That's our God. He produces that. He does that. He restores the broken marriage. He restores the broken community. He restores pulsing together, being meshed together like ligaments in the body, being linked arm in arm in this bond of peace. You now pursue and protect and promote the unity that the Spirit of God has established. Don't be divisive. Don't tear down, but together, together, linked together, we move forward in the strength of our king. You live in an incredible time. You've been given a great privilege, great opportunity to exist in 2015, to call this incredible city your home. And the Father, through the Son and by the Holy Spirit, is seeking to mesh you more and more and to see you grow more and more spiritually to reach this city as the great gospel that Paul established in the first half of the letter is now lived out here in community. By the power and enablement of the Spirit of God. It's my prayer for you that you'll grow to know this king more and you'll have this insatiable desire to, to live out the gospel together and this desire to turn the city on its ear in a good way for the glory of our king and for the furtherance of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we, we know that uh, we are feeble and broken, but you are able and powerful and beautiful and you are a God of renewal and transformation, Father. You shape us and you change us for your glory.
for your purpose. Father, do a work so beyond us here in this community. Do a work that will blow our faith out of the water. They'll just bring us to a state of awe. Lord, do a great work in this family, Charles River Church. And Father, may it blossom and grow from here that it wouldn't just stop in these communities, but that there would be this growing, living, breathing organism that you have established, Father, that would reach throughout Boston and New England, Father, that you'd be made famous. God, that your truth would reign and that your hope would reign, Lord. Not a temporal hope, but an eternal hope. That we would surrender to you more and more, Lord, and just say, take me and use me, Father. That we wouldn't be afraid anymore. That we would go for your glory right here and within our families and within our schools, Father. For your enablement, Lord, mesh us and propel us forward to live what we believe. All for your fame, all for your praise. Pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.